You're listening to Denver Orbit. Episode 38. Life in Miniature. Oh, hi. I didn't see you come in. Welcome to Denver Orbit, just one of 750,000 podcasts available for your listening pleasure. What's Denver Orbit, you ask? Why, it's simple. It's an audio magazine featuring voices, stories, and sounds from Colorado's creative community. My name is Josh Madison. Let's just jump right into things today. We've got a couple of pieces for you that come from both me and from Shannon Geis. Well... The first story is all Shannon, really. But after that, we've got a trailer for our new upcoming documentary uh, that Shannon and I have been working on for a little while now. But let's talk about the first story for a minute. Shannon talked to an old friend of mine, Becky Waring Steele. Becky is an artist who works in the medium of miniature. I should note that this may be my favorite artistic medium of all time. Much to the annoyance of those around me, I've been known to loudly and probably irritatingly lament the lack of dioramas at museums these days. And before you ask, yes, I've been to the Colorado Railroad Museum. It's fine. P.S. If anyone wants to start an all-diorama museum with me, well, you know where to find me. Anyway, to me, Becky's work goes beyond just model trains and dusty old Civil War battle recreations. There's a lot more going on here. So, here's Shannon with that story. What is utopia? If you could build a perfect society, what would it look like? How would people interact? Where would everyone live? And how would it be governed? For artist Becky Waring Steele, these were questions she started contemplating after the 2016 presidential election. Yeah, I actually remember the moment it first popped into my head. I was walking to the bus. I would take the 15 bus down Colfax in the mornings to get to work. And just noticing all the different people in my neighborhood. It's a very diverse community. And it was right after the you know 2016 election. And I think I felt in many ways a loss of community. But then walking around and, you know, really seeing people in their day-to-day lives really, I don't know, gave me this feeling that there's this larger community that I'm a part of and figuring out a new way to tap into it and ways to take these more complex societal issues that I think within the structure of our current society can seem really overwhelming to find the solutions. So this idea came to me that if I were to create a society on a smaller scale that was a little more manageable for people to realize they could start from square one, what would they do? What are the things that they would want to integrate into their world? Because I think sometimes when you look at it 
under you know all all the the rules and regulations that are set up for us now it seems really overwhelming to make changes but i figured that if i was able to scale a society down to a more manageable size for people to really be able to you know take a step back and really envision themselves in that space and what that would feel like rather than taking the baggage from everyday life with them too Becky works in miniatures. She builds tiny structures and characters at about 1 one sixtieth scale. So working in miniatures really lent itself well to, to my life, that even if I was living in a studio apartment, I still had space to work in that scale. I also, uh, my dad worked with model trains when I was a kid. So I grew up a lot with him, like spending time in the basement, working on the whole model train setup and creating little worlds. And my mom and I worked a lot with uh, my childhood dollhouse. So always like rearranging rooms in there and creating new furniture and little vignettes. So I've always been, I've always really been drawn to miniatures. I think it's something that, you know, you're, I think especially as kids, you're always so connected with it because it scales everything down and brings it to a really manageable size that you can wrap your mind around. Becky decided she would build a miniature utopia. But she didn't want to build it all by herself. She wanted it to be a community project. So she created an application for others to become citizens of her utopia, asking applicants to explain why they were interested in the project and what skills they could bring to a new society. At first, the application was just on paper and passed out to friends and fellow artists in Denver. But eventually, Becky put the application online, and she started getting people from other parts of the country and even other parts of the world applying. Once someone becomes a citizen of utopia, they submit a photo so that Becky can make a miniature version of them to live in the miniature model of Utopia. One part that like maybe I shouldn't admit, but I'm just going to, I love looking at the miniature of me. Um, it somehow never gets old. That's Erin McMillan. She's a friend of Becky's and one of the first citizens of Utopia. Membership number 11. So what does Becky's Utopia look like? It's not exactly as perfect as the name implies. It's located in an arid climate with small shrubs and low trees. Water flows from a waterfall over a cliff and into a river that irrigates the gardens of Utopia. Houses sit on the banks of the river. They're modeled after earthships, an environmentally friendly style of architecture that uses natural and recycled materials to build structures that require zero public utilities. And the entire model could fit in most people's living rooms. I do integrate some traditional modeling materials into my work. So, you know, a lot of things to, meant to replicate the scenery in our everyday environment. So, you know, little scale model trees that are made out of wire and uh, flocking fibers to give the looks of leaves. Uh, flocking for grass, so little nylon and rayon fibers that help to emulate that. A lot of my work really deals with symbols because it's relying on your eye to fill in a lot of the details. So it's really hinting at little details, but not getting, you know, too microscopic with the detail because the human eye will make up a lot of what's in between. Um, I like to integrate a lot of natural materials into my work as well. So uh, sands and stones and crystals. And for Utopia, the Earthship dwellings themselves, I'm using a polymer clay meant to look more like the earthen clay dwellings. Although many may think of Utopia as a perfect place, 
For Becky's project, that's still a goal to aspire to. When I imagine utopia, we've been so kind of, at least me, have been like raised to think about it in like, um, like the Jetsons or whatever, you know, like it's the future. It's like these beautiful, shiny things and everything's easy. But, but Becky's take on utopia has been completely different than that. Like we're going in New Mexico and it's about sustainable living and it's about like bartering and using resources and using skills, um, which I think is kind of like an old way to think about community, but a, a really efficient, awesome way to think about community. That's Drew Austin, another citizen of Utopia. Creating a new society in a desert has meant that citizens of Utopia immediately had to figure out solutions to some basic challenges. Citizen Shauna Doring. I don't know, there's a river in Utopia and we talk about like what happens to people who live in the floodplain, which it's made up, but we're still like talking about real things. Like this is a thing that would happen maybe. In order to address these issues, Becky sends out surveys and ballots to get feedback from everyone. At first, she sent them out through the mail, but now sends them by email as the community has grown to more than 80 citizens. But throughout the process, too, the citizens, they all have an equal vote and say in how the, prog- in how the, in how the society forms, but also in how the you know, physical diorama starts to take shape. I felt that it was important for everyone to feel like they had an equal voice in it. As Utopia has expanded, Citizens have used their own skills and talents to add to the project. Nathan Hall is a composer and artist. He volunteered to write a national anthem for Utopia. If you had to come up with a national anthem completely from scratch without kind of a preconception of what your society wants out of it, what would it be, you know? And so I listened to a lot of comments and I wrote down kind of poetic phrases and things like that. And then I did come to the understanding that people do actually love to sing their anthem. It, it, I even thought maybe it's going to be a spoken thing. Maybe it'll be a clapping rhythm or something. Um, but there's something so proud and joyous about singing together that I came up with lyrics then and set them to music. And then I had the challenge of coming up with a melody that isn't as difficult as most national anthems because the risk you run is that people's ranges aren't big enough to sing it, and then they feel like it's not theirs if they can't physically accomplish it well. So I came up with a very middle ground melody for it, Um, and some harmonies in the chords that still feel a little bit like me, but also kind of traditional fanfare, patriotic in a general sense. And that's when I went and listened to a bunch of other countries' national anthems to see, like, are there some common ingredients that make people feel joyous or proud? Um, And then ran them by Becky. We had a little rough draft session. And she said, well, that's great. I love it. So then finalized that, and I, I printed it out on a giant banner for her. On a recent summer evening, citizens came to Nathan's house to rehearse the song. Utopia, utopia, a new society Where future forward and sustaining Growing our gardens green We rise up from the ashes Our earthships face the day We celebrate our special gifts 
Citizens perform the national anthem for the first time was an amazing experience for me. Um, and, and I think for them too, I, I saw people kind of, I mean, none of us, I think with the exception of Nathan Hall, um, are professional singers. Um, I mean, it was just really wonderful for us to be in a space that, you know, everyone felt safe to just kind of put themselves out there and, you know, gather around uh, Nathan's piano. And it had this really you know, warm, inviting feel to it. Um, uh, one of our citizens, Sarah, her, her daughter Lou was there, and Lou is, I think, two now, and it was great to see Lou's reaction, who was applauding for us at the end, and it was just, it, it made it feel, I think it brought this, uh, it, it brought this kind of, you know, lo-fi virtual reality into reality for me, too. The citizens are constantly considering the question of how a new society would approach things. One afternoon, a group got together to sew a flag for Utopia. Shauna took the lead on that project, as she is an avid quilter. Oh, are you ready for the next step? Yeah. I can give you the, oh, yes. the inside of the Earth ship. I put it right there on the chair. Oh. Is it brown? Yes. Yeah. So then that'll... So, this is the door slash entryway of the little earth ship that's mm -hmm. on the flag. Oh, right. And it goes around. This will go... So the, the um, light brown needs to be on top. If we were starting a new society, what would you make your flag out of, your first flag? And it would be scraps of things that people already have, which is why we asked for t-shirts from citizens. And we're hand sewing it as a community because it's probably what you would do. Like you'd get your group together and sort of be like, we need something that represents us, so what are we going to do? So that's kind of how we approach the flag for this. Even though building and participating in Utopia may act as an escape for Becky and the citizens, the real world still creeps in. The day that citizens worked on the flag was just a couple of days after a controversial initiative was voted down in Denver. Initiative 300 would have allowed homeless people to camp in public spaces without threat of arrest, and it was voted down with 82.8% of voters saying no. Several citizens had campaigned in favor of the initiative. I mean, it, it, was, it was also this really wonderful moment where we all kind of got to come together and, you know, be able to, like, kvetch a little bit about not, you know, having the legislation passed, but also think about, like, what are the things that we can still do in our local communities, um, you know, to, to be able to, to help people and just let them know that, you know, people are still thinking about them. And I think, too, in the, in the scope of utopia, kind of, I don't know, I, I think really made that the, the mission of it to begin with became really clear of, you know, this is just about connecting people and making sure that everyone is, you know, cared for and represented and feels like they have a voice. And I think particularly with that ballot issue coming up, it was, it was difficult because I think a lot of people didn't feel like they had a voice in it or, you know, coming up against uh, much larger, you know, developers and, you know, the real estate agencies and, and 
larger forces that were able to raise more money and kind of overshadow that. And I think, I mean, those were also things early on when I started the project two years ago where, you know, with the 2016 elections feeling this loss of community and loss of like being able to have a powerful voice of change. But I think being in a room with people and being able to talk about those things really made it feel like, okay, well, there's still a lot more, I don't know, there's, there's this like-mindedness and, you know, when you really sit down and talk to people face-to-face about issues, it's different reactions. So it was, I think, a good opportunity for us to kind of come together and be in a safe space and have those conversations. And this connection, for many, is what drew them to become citizens in the first place. Shauna Doring. I think what drew me to this project is, like, it's being informed by citizens who are actual people, which I know in our country we're all actual people, but it sometimes feels like I'm really far removed from like say our political process or something where I don't really feel like I have a voice. But I know it sort of in some sense started out that way and still is like we're still informed by our people. But like utopia is sort of this little microcosm of this idea about what we're trying to do in real life. <laughs> it's sort of like, it seems like a less um, charged way of sort of doing like democracy, if you will, of like making decisions as a community. Utopia is now being displayed at the Colorado Springs Fine Arts Center. And Becky hopes that it allows others to think about the building blocks of our society from a new perspective. Utopia to me is just all, all the little things. Just really taking time, I think, to slow down in your day-to-day life and really think about all the systems that are, you know, currently in place, but not thinking about them in this really rigid sense that this is exactly how things need to be and how they need to function. So I think utopia is almost kind of this disruption of what our typical view of society is. I think a lot of people look at it and go, well, I mean, that's not possible. And there's many things, you know, within utopias that aren't entirely possible, but I think it's taking those positive elements from those and just really trying to integrate those things into your day-to-day lives and just really, just being really careful with people. Like just, I don't know, just really, you know, being careful with your environment, being careful with the people who you interact yourselves with, you know, like just, being aware of all these other things that are happening outside yourself. What is your role in these situations? And, you know, how can you improve upon things on a daily basis? Um, Yeah, I mean, not just for yourself, but for, for everyone. Yeah, it's, it's tricky times right now. And I think that things feel very divisive. So I hope that another takeaway for people from this exhibition is just being able to, you know, talk about these more complex issues, but not talking about them in a way that there's a right and a wrong. There's a gray area in between. There's many ways that we can meet in the middle. And I think the most important thing is just that we're having these conversations so that we don't feel so disconnected moving forward. Utopia, A New Society for All, is on exhibit from now until November 3rd.
Utopia, a new society for all, is on view through November 3rd at the Colorado Springs Fine Arts Center at Colorado College. You can also find more about Becky's work on Instagram, Facebook, and her website, beckywearingsteel.com. Of course, we'll have links to all of those in the show notes. Shannon Geis is a freelance audio and multimedia producer and oral historian. If you want to hear more things from her, well, you can. Her website is shannongeist.net. And of course, if you look back through our archives, we've got a few more things from her on this very program. Now, before we end this episode, I want to play a trailer for you. It's for a project that former co-host Ryan Connell and I started years ago. This project has taken many twists and turns over the years, but thanks to Ryan and Shannon, it's finally nearing completion. It's a documentary about the murder of Denver-area talk show host Alan Berg. But it's not just about that. It's also about the ideology that led to his murder and the connection to the rise of white supremacy that we see today. I hope you listen, and if you're interested, I'll link to the site where you can subscribe or you can just search for The Order of Death wherever you find your podcasts. I was um, driving down the street in mid-September of 1981. I had been here about a week, and I flipped over to KOA. You're listening to Alan Berg on KOA. And I heard this man talking in this very fast, scratchy voice. His name was Alan Berg. Wait, wait a minute here. Hold me now. What happened? I die, right? Yes. Now, why did you wish me dead? Oh, well, apparently I said it, but oh, I died. Why did you say, yeah, Alan, you're not going to die. You're going to go on. You are insane. They had a poll in Denver to vote for the most liked and the most disliked radio personality, and he won both awards. And that kind of told you who he was. But what, what is hell? You get now? Explain to me. Explain to me. And I want to arrive in hell. What do they do first? Oh, I don't know, and I certainly don't want to know. I know that when well, I you, you got to help you. I heard the recordings. I mean, I knew what he was up against with his rhetoric. I knew that he was antagonizing the the audiences. And he wasn't afraid to confront anyone, anyone at all. Quit yelling! If you don't like it, you can move to Moscow, correct? In other words, if you're not not a Christian, you're un-American. Is that your point, sir? That's right. Good point, sir. You and your redneck, go to bed. On the evening of June 18th, 1984, Alan Berg was gunned down in the driveway of his Capitol Hill home. And so, and then his body was displayed out right here. And then if you look here, you can see there's bullet holes. So, yeah. So there's what? One, two, three, four, five, six that wound up in the garage door. Um, And they. So in 1984, I was here about three years at Alan Berg was murdered in his driveway. And it was probably the most sensational murder in the city's history. We've had a lot of very interesting murder cases uh, over the course of the city's existence, but this one had not just national implications, it had worldwide implications. Because this story isn't just about the tragedy of Allenberg's murder, it's also about an ideology that America is still grappling with today. One of the iconic images of the radical right, the rise of the radical right, the rise of the violent right in America, is Alan Berg. He's got one leg in the car, and he's lying in a pool of blood on the pavement in front of his townhouse. 
Onward we will go, onward to the stars, high above the mud, the mud of yellow, black, and brown. The fate of every last white man, woman, and child on this planet lies squarely on the shoulders of us here in this room today. We have broken the chains of Jewish thought. So stand up like men and drive the enemy into the sea. Stand up like men and reclaim our soil. Kinsmen, arise. This story starts in Allenberg's driveway, continues to a white supremacist compound in Medellin Falls, Washington, travels to a deserted highway outside Ukiah, California, and comes to a fiery end in a house on Whidbey Island. So what looked on June 18th, 1984, like sort of a random killing of a radio host was gradually evolving into the largest investigation into domestic terrorism in United States history. It's about an ideology that spreads like a virus from that same driveway to a cabin in Ruby Ridge, Idaho, a federal building in Oklahoma City, a rally in Charlottesville, Virginia, a synagogue in Pennsylvania, and a mosque in New Zealand. I'm Josh Madison. And I'm Shannon Geis. And this is The Order of Death, a story about the assassination of Allen Berg and a conspiracy to overthrow the United States government. Full episodes of The Order of Death will be available starting in mid-September. And that's it for today. Denver Orbit is produced. And all that by me, Josh Madison. You can find the show on Twitter, on Facebook, and on the old Instagram. And if you're interested in making a thing with me, or maybe you just want to say hi, you can reach out to denverorbit at gmail.com or, you know, any of the above-mentioned social media stuff. And we will have a new episode soon. <laughs>